So in my opinion, mindfulness is meditation, but it's, it's so much more. It's a way of living. It's, an, it's a way of life. It's an attitude, uh, a very profound change in perspective. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I'm honored to share today's guest with you. Dr. Melanie Greenberg is a practicing psychologist, life and business coach in Marin County, California, and an expert on managing stress, health, and relationships using proven techniques from neuroscience, mindfulness, and positive psychology. She blends scientific knowledge with mindful wisdom and heart-based compassion. Dr. Melanie seeks to educate, support, heal, and inspire you so you can overcome emotional barriers to fulfilling your potential. She is the author of the newly published book, The Stress-Proof Brain, an Amazon bestseller in neuropsychology, stress management, and health. She writes the Mindful Self-Express blog for Psychology Today, which has over 8 million page views. With more than 20 years of experience as a professor, author, researcher, clinician, and coach, Melanie has delivered talks and workshops to national and international audiences, businesses, nonprofits, and professional organizations like the American Psychological Association. A popular media expert, she has been featured on CNN, Forbes, BBC Radio, ABC News, Yahoo, and Lifehacker, as well as Business Insider, Self, Redbook, Women's Health, Men's Health, Fitness Magazine, Live Strong, Women's Day, Cosmopolitan, Marie Claire, and the Huffington Post. She has also been featured on radio shows and numerous podcasts. With almost 50,000 followers, Melanie was named one of the 30 most prominent psychologists to follow on Twitter. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So I wanted to ask you a question because as I was learning about you, I found your background really interesting because you mentioned that you have expertise in neuroscience, mindfulness, and positive psychology, and those things at, at a glance would seem to be somewhat at odds with each other. So talk to me a little bit about how those come together for you in your practice. So some of this comes from my background as a professor. My training was in health psychology, which in the, at the time was kind of a new field. And it's looking at mental health through the biopsychosocial model. Like in a, basically, it's looking at mental health and health as being mind and body and spirit as being connected. So, you know, there's a lot of research and scientific knowledge, but the way that I see things is that, you know, your brain and your biology basically interact with what's, with what's happening in your life 
and with your thoughts and feelings, you know, to create your final response. So I'm really interested in how all those things influence each other. I don't like to look at the biology aside from, you know, how your experience. Right. That makes sense. So when you're applying them, how do those work together for you? So an example could be that somebody comes in, say, with a chronic pain problem, and the, the pain feels out of control. They feel helpless you know, to manage their pain. It's causing a lot of stress. It's, it's affecting their relationships. People are critical of them. So in dealing with that, you know, there's, this, there's the pain. There's the person's attitude and feelings about the pain, that they're helpless. You know, they feel depressed. There's the social relationships where, you know, people are criticizing them. And that can actually, all of that can affect the pain and make the subjective experience of the pain worse. So in helping this person, uh, they might come in saying, I want you to cure my pain. But it doesn't work that way because pain's a mind-body issue. So, you know, our mind influences the pain just as much as the the physiology. So I would try to, you know, help them deal with the pain in their world. Like, you know, that the pain is there um, without letting it define you as a human being. How could you try to live a meaningful life despite the pain? I see. So could you give me an example then in your practice how you combine those three? So in my practice, I might have a patient come in that's experiencing chronic pain and they're depressed about their pain because they can't get it to go away and it's interfering with their life. And maybe their partner is criticizing them you know, for not being more active or for complaining. And so how I would treat that person, I would try to move them away from wanting medicine to cure their pain which is often not possible in chronic conditions, and help them understand how stress affects their pain, that when they get more stress, that actually affects the pathways. So it makes the subjective experience of pain worse. I might help them see how their thoughts and feelings affect the pain so that, you know, instead of being helpless, can they focus on trying to live the best life they can despite the pain? And can they be perhaps more assertive and, and more communicative with the, the people in their lives that are criticizing them? And that can help them feel more empowered, which will decrease their stress. So everything goes, everything interacts. That makes a lot of sense. Everything kind of comes together in that sense. And in describing that, Dr. Melanie, you mentioned stress a couple of times. And I know that you just released and have this best selling book on Amazon. The Stress-Proof Brain. Could you tell us a little bit about that book and how people can use that book and what they'd get from it? Sure. I'm really excited about my new book. It just came out in February and it's been about almost two years in the making. And it captures a lot of my knowledge from being a professor, from being a clinical psychologist, from my own life experience. And I'm trying to turn around um, the way people deal with stress I think stress is such an issue um, today. These days, there's so much unpredictability, whether it's in the political climate or the economic climate or the world of work. And things we used to take for granted are kind of all in flux now. So I think it's essential that you know, people learn how to manage their stress. And so I describe how stress works in the brain, which is that it's an automatic response that can 
just trigger you into a state of fight or flight where you get into a kind of an automatic response pattern where you be, you just want to act or you worry. And I want to, to tell people how to manage that and have tools to manage that so that they can not be derailed by stress and can use its positive aspects uh, because it's energizing and that they can you know, stay on track with their goals. Yeah, it's very interesting. One of the things you mentioned was stress in the workplace. And I, I recently read an article that you know talked about and with all of these technological advances that we were going to have such as artificial intelligence and workflow automation that our lives should be easier that we should have shorter time spent in the workplace uh, but in fact it's been the opposite in fact that we're spending more time than ever at our jobs and our stress is increasing so your book is certainly very timely from that perspective you talked a little bit about that the book goes into how stress affects the brain. Could you talk to us about that, please? Sure. So uh, there's a stress response in our brain, which involves this part of the brain called the amygdala. It's an almond-shaped small structure in the middle of the brain. And it's kind of like the brain's fire alarm. So the purpose of the amygdala is to detect things that you ne- we need to take care of or pay attention to or things that might be threatening and gear up our whole system to deal with that threat. And it originated, I believe, in the days when we were tribal and when we lived in the jungle and we had to deal with tigers and lions. That was what humans had to do, is basically fight off the predators and stop themselves from starving. So it's very primitive in a way. It's all or nothing. And you know, it's a, it was appropriate to those circumstances where you just had to stop whatever you were doing and run away from the tiger. But today, the stresses that we face are so much more complex and so much more drawn out, and they don't necessarily involve a physical response. Sometimes it just involves a lot of careful thinking and communicating. So this response can get in our way because we get, you know, wired up to, to fight or flight, to run away or to fight. And it can take us off track. It can derail us. It's kind of like, you know, the person when you press send on that email and it's, you know, it's a very angry email and it's just written in the moment where you, but you almost can't stop yourself. That's an example of the stress, fight or flight in action. So, but there's another part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of like the CEO of your brain. It's, it's the executive center. It's your thinking part. And so if you can just slow things down enough, the prefrontal cortex can get on board and can communicate with the amygdala. It's okay. You don't have to act right now. You know, let's just take a step back. You've got this. You've got the skills. Let's figure out what's best to do here. And so if you can harness your prefrontal cortex to calm down the amygdala, you can be much more effective in dealing with stress and, and in life in general and in your relationships. So in essence, what you're talking about is harnessing the more modern, I suppose, for lack of a better term, part of our brain to tame the prehistoric part of our brain, so to speak. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So it's, you know, it's our human brain is the cortex. It's it's very well developed in humans. It's, you know, our capacity for thought and, and integrating things. And we can use it. If we understand how everything works, we can use 
our brain much more effectively. The other piece is that we can, our brains have this quality known as neuroplasticity, which means they can be changed by experience. In other words, if we keep practicing new habits and new ways of thinking day after day after day, you know, over months and years, we can actually change our pathways. So our brain learns from experience. And so we can, we can become less panicky about stress. We can become more confident. We can become more thoughtful. And this actually gets put into the wiring of our brains, which is very exciting. So in essence, what your book teaches people to do is rewire their brains and shift their responses from that which promotes stress to a more healthy response. That's exactly right. And it's really important to do that on a number of levels. I mean, stress stress can be a killer. I mean, stress creates inflammation, which is related to heart disease. Stress affects our blood pressure. Stress, you know, is related to all kinds of diseases. And then we do unhealthy things to deal with stress, like drink too much or eat too much or not exercise and not take care of ourselves. So it's very important to manage our stress in terms of longevity and you know, living a healthy life and having the energy to fulfill your potential. And stress also gets in the way of relationships, makes people angry, it makes people hit out at each other. It makes people say things they regret. And so it's very important to manage stress as well so that we can nurture our relationships and we can work together and we don't drive people away. And everybody reacts to stress differently in in some regard. And I I always have conceptualized stress as a bucket of water. And the closer to the top the bucket is, the less our threshold is of tolerating stressful situations in our life. And depending on our history and genetics and a lot of factors in our lives, one person's bucket may be higher or lower than another person's bucket. So let's say somebody has a bucket where their threshold is pretty close to the top. With your techniques, the things that are in your book, how quickly can one person start to expect that they would have improvement? So it depends on what degree of improvement you're talking about. I have clients that come into a session, they're all triggered, they're all wired up because something happened. Maybe they had a fight with their partner or maybe their boss criticized them. And it, and it opens up a whole can of worms related to their childhood and how you know, maybe they, their parent was critical or narcissistic or abusive. And so they come in very triggered, very you know, not focusing, not feeling grounded, kind of feeling in a panic. And we do maybe 20 minutes of mindfulness meditation. And that means focusing on your body and your breathing, slowing things down breathing into all the different parts of your body, opening things up, softening. And I find at the end of that session where perhaps they couldn't even concentrate and take in what I was saying before, or they're resistant, after the mindfulness, you just, you have a noticeable change. They're softer, they're calmer, they're a bit happier, they're more attentive, they're more open. So they can be an immediate change just with one session. And that's not going to change your brain permanently but I just use that as an example. But if you do that over and over again, five times a week, over months, and sometimes years, but but for many people, months, 
I, the brain pathways start to change. In the mindfulness studies, people did this intensive um, mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and it was two hours a week, and then they practiced for half an hour a day. And after eight to 10 weeks, you can see changes on brain scans where the amygdala is sometimes a little bit less powerful. The prefrontal cortex is, is more powerful and more dense, and the communication between them is better. And the parts of our brain related to compassion are sometimes also changed to become more compassionate. What uh, Could you speak to that a little bit more, the, the parts of the brain that directly relate to compassion? Well, I'm, in particular, the insula is a part of the brain. It has many functions, but it seems to be involved in compassion. And, you know, that compassion means being able to connect with another person in an empathic way. It's a desire to help somebody else. So it's an awareness of their suffering and a desire to take in some level to take away that suffering, even if you don't act on it. And so it seems to be wired into our brain in certain circuits and certain parts. And those can actually be seen on brain scans. And it can be increased and improved. Mindfulness makes us more compassionate when we meditate when we have a particular attitude towards life, which is more, more accepting and more soft. So there's your positive psychology piece coming, coming back into the fold as you're doing that. Uh, and I, I do know that mindfulness is a large portion of this new book. But before mindfulness, you also talk about you know, how we react to stress. And you, know, you, you did say that it lead, can lead to additional heart disease and, you know, emotional distress. But could you speak a little bit more specifically about what kind of damage stress can do? Sure. So stress can, over periods of time, it can create inflammation in our bodies. It can also depress the immune system. Some of these reactions make sense if you're thinking about somebody that's had a battle and has to recover from the battle. So these, these reactions make sense in the short term and in, in the context, you know, of that historical context. But over, and acute stress isn't necessarily harmful. But and for some, there's some studies that pieces of it can make you feel a little bit, your immune system work a bit better in the short term. But in the long term, you know, it kind of erodes your immune system. You, you develop inflammation. And that can affect, you know, the kind of the channels and the pathways going to your heart. Or it can dysregulate your glucose. Your glucose levels can get out of whack. Because part of fight or flight is getting glucose to the brain, so the brain can operate more quickly. But, you know, that can relate to diabetes. And so, you know, there's many different effects in the body of having prolonged stress. And especially when the stresses are piling up on top of each other and there's no break. I'm curious if you're aware of any research or based on your experience, the impact that social media can have on one's level of stress. Just, I'm just going to talk based on clinical experience. What I see with clients is that social media can just, it can keep triggering insecurity. So somebody's feeling lonely or somebody's feeling unattractive and feeling not good about themselves. And then they look at, at Facebook and they see what a good time everybody else is having. 
and what fun everybody else is having. And, you know, they feel left out. They feel, they see people starting new relationships. And they feel inadequate. They feel that, that their life isn't going well. And it's just, there's this constant kind of comparison that makes them more insecure and makes them feel worse. Whereas in fact, you know, a lot of Facebook people, people post the best of themselves and they post the best moments and it's not really a realistic view of somebody's life. That makes sense. I, I asked you that because I, I had read an article recently where Facebook is working on technology that based on the tenor of one's posts, uh, it, it's trying to create an algorithm to determine if people might be suicidal. And I was curious to see anecdotally, given your work, uh, to what degree you see that social media exacerbates one's stress. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it, it really exacerbates insecurity. And I see it in, I have a 15-year-old daughter. So I see it, you know, it starts very young with, with this, this Snapchat and this Instagram. And I find, you know, when we go somewhere, my daughter has to stop and take these selfies, you know, showing what a good time she's having. Or, you know, if she's spending a weekend on her own without, without a, seeing a friend, she has to look at all her friends constantly posting on Snapchat what a wonderful time they're having together. And she's pretty proactive in, in getting together with friends and organizing fun things. But I could imagine, you know, somebody that's more isolated, if they had to, they have to keep seeing the stuff, it, just, it makes them feeling, feel left out, feel unpopular, you know, feel that they're not measuring up. And, and they're very young and their brains are young and still growing. So, you know, I see that effect very much in, in that generation. The book that you just released, is that a book that, a 15-year-old could apply those skills and tactics to as well? Yeah, I think I think it depends on the 15-year-old. Um, but, you know, pretty savvy 15-year-old. Somebody, um, like some of my, my daughter's friends are reading the book and enjoying it. You know, I think they would skip past some of the parts might be a bit boring for them, but too much detail about the physiology. But I definitely think that they could use a lot of the strategies. Sure. Okay. Well, that's good to know, certainly. Um, and you did touch on mindfulness and we, we hit it in a couple of points, but I think it's really important because in recent years, the literature has come out overwhelmingly supportive of the positive effects that meditation can have on one's overall well-being, physiologically, spiritually, etc. So I wonder if we could take a step back and really talk about you know mindfulness you you mentioned that it's meditation but how how is mindfulness different than other kinds of meditation and how does one go about doing it and applying it to their lives so in my opinion mindfulness is meditation but it's it's so much more it's a way of living it's an, it's a way of life it's an attitude uh, a very profound change in perspective and people don't always understand that. They, they think that it's meditation. And meditation is a big part of it because it's that's how you learn and maintain the skill. But mindfulness, to me, is an open, compassionate attitude towards your own inner experience, whatever that is, and also towards your world. So what mindfulness teaches you is to see your judging thoughts, to see your negativity, to see your, your reactivity and your fear and your, and your clinging to things and to create some space and distance from that. 
So you see that that's not you. And that can make you much more accepting of life, of, of the changes of life, of other people, and help you feel more connected and just being rather than having to be doing all the time and you know running on this sort of like hamster wheel of life. And how you begin to learn mindfulness is with a kind of meditation where you just focus on the breath as an anchor and you just keep, you watch your breath, you watch it go in and you watch it go out. And in that process, it naturally slows down. And then you see that your mind wanders when you're trying to watch the breath and, and you have a judging thought or you have a thought, well, this isn't working, I'm not doing this properly. And in the moment where you can catch that thought, notice that you're having it because it's very quick and then bring your attention back to the breath. You've now gotten a little bit more power over the, how you focus your attention. You've gotten a little bit more self-awareness. And... If you keep doing that, you'll learn the difference between your direct experience and your body versus you know, all this judgment and all this stuff that we cling to. And you can, you can therefore decrease the power of thoughts over your life of negative thinking, for example, of judging thoughts, of fear. And how long does it take to start really getting these mindfulness techniques down? So this basic meditation where you just watch your breath, you can just say, I am breathing in, I am breathing out. That's all you have to do. It's very simple. You can start with five minutes and build it up. In the studies, it was you know around 30 minutes on average where the brain changed. But there's another study with 20 minutes where they got a lot of the changes, not all of them. But in my opinion, it's the regularity that's important. It's making it a routine. It's making it part of your life. So even if you start a very short period, I think you'll, you start to get attached to it. You start to enjoy it. You start to see its effects and the whole experience changes. And then you're naturally motivated to do more of it and do it for longer periods. So start with five or 10 minutes, but just get it into your life. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. And then what other mindfulness techniques can a person do other than that breathing? Is there other things that they can do during the day when they're in their jobs, when they're at dinner with their kids and their spouse? What can they do to increase their mindfulness outside of kind of a meditative state? Yeah, there's lots of things. You can, you can pay attention to your senses. So, for example, if you're going on a walk, you can notice all different senses. Like, what are you seeing? Say you're going on a nature walk. You know, you're seeing the trees and you're seeing the water. You're noticing the sky. You're noticing the color of the trees. You're feeling the breeze on your body. You're hearing the sound of the birds. You're feeling your, your feet leave the ground as you walk and then get back, come back onto the ground. You're feeling the feeling in your body. 
what it feels like to be having this walk. So you can do this in any situation. I'm just using the walk as an example. It's just deliberately focusing. What am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? You know, what movement is happening with me right now in this moment? It's bringing your attention to the present moment. And then once you kind of get what mindfulness is, you can use it throughout your day. You can mindfully, you know, meet your, your partner or your children in the morning. You can say goodbye mindfully. Before you, you look on Facebook or look on your computer, you can take a deep breath and you can ground yourself. Okay, you know, what's most important for me to focus on now? You can check in with yourself. Are, are my shoulders tight? You know, am I being on automatic pilot again, but I don't even notice, you know, what I'm seeing around me? And you can deliberately um, make yourself mindful. All right. Well, that's very interesting. I'm wondering if you could talk to us. You know, you, you've expressed a number of different ways you can use mindfulness. How about using mindfulness in the workplace? How does that apply there? So mindfulness is a great tool for the workplace. A lot of companies who are sort of at the forefront of things, you know, the innovative companies are actually using mindfulness and training their employees in mindfulness. Google has a mindfulness officer and your General Mills, Aetna, some of these big companies have really got on board with mindfulness. I think especially because of the scientific results that it, what a good effect it has on the brain and on productivity and relationships. So at work, you can use mindfulness. You know, I guess part of it's you know, when you're with the screen, with the computer, before you sit down, try to be mindful. Sometimes, you know, your beeps interrupt you when you get messages and stuff like that. So maybe it's trying to take set, set all that stuff so it doesn't disturb you or, you know, try deliberately bring your attention back to what you're doing. A little bit of planning, you know, what's most important for me to work on now. Also trying to be tolerant, you know, with your colleagues, trying to communicate mindfully, trying not to get caught up, you know, in maybe in competition or in, critici in criticism and overreacting. It's really interesting that you said that Google actually has a mindfulness officer. So what are the responsibilities, as you understand them, of a mindfulness officer? And how is Google specifically, if you know, implementing mindfulness within their organization? I don't know exactly. Um, there's a book called Look Inside Yourself, which was written by the Google mindfulness officer. And I, I can't pronounce his name right now. Um, but I believe he does mindfulness courses and probably leads mindfulness groups or practices. And he's written this book. I don't know if he gives lectures on it. Though that would be my guess. I don't know for sure. But the idea is to help the people be more mindful. May, you know, to reduce stress probably would be one piece to manage stress better, but also probably so they can be more innovative and they can they can deal with the you know the, the big work demands. What's interesting about that, Dr. Melanie, is that it does seem that there's this trend where more and more people are becoming aware of mindfulness. I guess that's ironic. They're mindful of mindfulness. And, and this is something that can be used by an individual. This is something that can be used in a small business. This is something that obviously, as you said, Google's doing. It's They're obviously employing this into massive corporate settings. But one of the things we haven't talked a bit about, and I really want to because you're an expert on relationships, is with two people, 
How can they use mindfulness together to improve their relationship? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I think with the romantic couple, I think, you know, sometimes we're our worst selves with the people that are closest to us. You know, it's like when you let your guard down at the end of the day, you've had a stressful day and, you know, sometimes your your partner gets the brunt of it. And what happens is that sometimes couples can get into negative cycles, especially, you know, if they're stressed by other things. Um, where, you know, one is just kind of expresses their stress by being irritable or critical or shut down. Then the other person gets sensitive to that and tries to communicate, connect, but they might do it in an angry way. And all of a sudden you find them all being caught up in a cycle where they're basically triggering each other. They have these fixed ways of relating. Sometimes there's a pursuer distancer. One's pursuing when one's distancing. The pursuer is often critical. The distancer feels criticized, overwhelmed. The pursuer feels lonely, doesn't feel the person really cares. So mindfulness can kind of get you out of those mindsets, which are very reactive and often shaped by past experience, both in the relationship and perhaps your childhood experiences and vulnerabilities. And it can get you, get you, you know, to deliberately stay, ground yourself and get into a more compassionate state of mind, see, trying to broaden the view and see the big picture. Oh, this is the person I love. Thinking about, is it really important to be arguing about the, the crumbs on the counter now? What's the bigger picture here? And then also to be able to tune in compassionately to yourself and the other person. What is this other, what do I need right now? What does the other person need right now? What are their goals? You know, what are they feeling? And when you get into that mindset, it's much more connection and you're not just, you know, going through your automatic routines and that can create good feeling and understanding. And Dr. Melanie, when you're talking about these automatic routines, you're talking about cycles. That's a term you've used a number of times during our talk. You're talking about these hardwired, essentially habits that we have wired our brain to react in these negative states or when like you said, a spouse you know, loses their mind about crumbs left on the counter. It's not really the crumbs on the counter. It's more that they've conditioned themselves to respond in a certain way to their partner. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And it can often be a certain negative way. Like if you um, have a negative belief about somebody, it can act as a self-fulfilling prophecy. They have a confirmation bias where you're kind of you're looking for the behaviors that confirm the belief. So say you think my spouse is not considerate, um, you'll be, you know, you'll be kind of vigilant without realizing it about all the things they're doing that are not considerate. And you won't probably notice the things they're doing that are considerate. And so that increases the negativity and the bias. Mindfulness can get you back into a more open, objective, compassionate frame of mind where, you, where these patterns have less power over you and these ways of judgmental thinking. And I know that you mentioned, of course, the act of starting the mindfulness. You talked about the breathing and following the breath, being aware if you're on a nature walk of you know the trees and your environment. It sounds like a lot of the act of mindfulness practice is kind of a solitary activity. Uh, but it can impact one's relationships all across the board. But are there things that couples can do together or people 
in, in a group setting, I guess is my question, are there mindfulness activities that two people can engage in at the same time? I think that two people can meditate together, but it still would be solitary. There's group meditations. So where I live, there's this place called Spirit Rock, where they have you know, regular meditation meetings and Dharma talks and, and silent three-day retreats. And I, I think that there's something that people pick up in a sense, in that silence together, in that meditation together, where there's a bit more of a loving, accepting growing atmosphere of growth. Uh, in terms of together, I think it's just more trying to tune into the other person in a compassionate way, focusing on the other person. What do they need? What, what are they feeling? What do I feel for them? Connecting with your love for them. I mean, those, that's all mindful, I think. That makes sense. And then I, I teased this a little bit earlier on in our talk when I asked you about, you know, could a 15-year-old read your book? And you said a savvy 15-year-old. But certainly as a, as a fellow psychologist, you know that there's a great deal of importance in instilling in our children when they're young the foundation so that they have a positive view of their self, the world, strong self-esteem. So at what age can you start talking to a kid and instilling some of these mindfulness techniques to help them manage their own stress, to you know think better of themselves? When can you start doing that? It's a really good question. And I'm not sure if there's a perfect answer. There are mindfulness practices for kids. You know, so they, they teach kids mindful, quite young kids mindfulness. And like at an elementary school, it might be, imagine that your thoughts are bubbles. So I've worked with elementary school kids, imagining that every thought you have is a bubble. You know, like just imagine the bubble in the sky and imagine, you know, the bubble kind of slowly bursts. And it's sort of helping them to watch their thoughts, notice which bubbles you want to hang on to. So you can do it in a simple way like that. And then middle school, I was working with a, somebody, a boy who had some anxiety about being in the car and whether the car was going to crash or whether they were going to get lost. And, you know, I taught him to do mindful breathing and focusing on your breath and focusing on softening in your body, taking your attention away from the fear you're onto something neutral, positive. So, yeah, I think that you can do it very young in a small way. And then in middle school, I think, is more understanding. And then in high school, I think that they can pick it up pretty well. All right, well, that's really great. And again, I think the kids doing it sounds fantastic. And I, I certainly want to try that with mine in a couple of years when they're old enough. I did want to ask you, you know, you've talked about mindfulness. We've talked a lot about stress. And we've talked about mindfulness from the standpoint of doing the meditating, being more aware of your environment, being aware of your body. What are the other components or are there other important components that go into mindfulness? One big one is self-compassion. They did a study of a mindfulness intervention, you know, that made people happier and healthier. And through some statistical analyses, they found that self-compassion, increases in self-compassion, accounted for some of the benefits of mindfulness. I think mindfulness can make you more compassionate to, to yourself and to other people. And what it is, 
when people are under stress in particular, it's very easy to criticize and blame yourself and get stuck in all this negative thinking, regretting, asking yourself, why did I do this? Blaming yourself or blaming other people. And mindfulness can help you be more compassionate to yourself. And even directly just thinking about being compassionate and and trying to take that perspective, it can help, it can deal a lot with this negative thinking and self inner critic and insecurities. And it can give you a way, you know, to kind of treat yourself better, to be kinder to yourself. So part of self-compassion is the idea of we're only human. We don't have to be perfect. People get perfectionistic and, you know, that can get in their way and make them more stressed or have you, people procrastinate because they want things to be perfect. Self-compassion is, is about challenging that thinking and just saying, you're human. It's okay to be human. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay not to do it 100%. Compassion for the circumstances. If somebody did make a mistake, what are the circumstances at the time that may have affected them? And also a kind of a self-kindness, you know, like you would be kind to, if you were introduced to a new person, you know, why not be kind to yourself? How would you feel if somebody spoke to you the way you spoke, speak to yourself? And one way people struggle with compassion for themselves. It, it takes a while sometimes for people to get there. One way is to think about think about somebody that loves you or think about a religious figure like Jesus or Buddha. Imagine them looking at you in this situation and see it through their eyes. Would they think you were stupid? How might they see it? And that, that's an exercise that can help people get a more compassionate perspective. That's interesting because... You, you mentioned these different religious figures, and I want to kind of jump back to mindfulness overall before we wrap up. Is mindfulness something that can apply to any religion, any person's background of faith? Absolutely. It has its roots in Buddhism and in ancient Eastern practices, but it's been brought to the West. John Kabat-Zinn was the person that famous person that brought mindfulness to the West. And basically he, he reformulated the way we talk about it. So it got away from the religious language and it was more scientific language. Like he called, he said, talked about the relaxation response, for example. And with that language, it becomes more accessible to people in the U S or in the West. So anybody can practice mindfulness. The principles were based in religion, but they're not religious principles. I see. Well, thanks for clearing that up for sure. And I wanted to thank you so much. We're just about out of time here. Thank you so much, Dr. Melanie, for coming on the show. As you probably know, one of the things I do to wrap up is I ask all of my guests, what is the one biggest helping, the single most important piece of information they want the listener to walk away with after hearing today's episode? So my take-home message is that stress is a natural part of life but it doesn't have to own you. It doesn't have to get in the way of your health and happiness. And you can change the way you respond to stress. And that affects your relationship with the events. That changes your whole reaction. So if you can learn to manage your brain's automatic fight or flight response, you can put an end to unhealthy responses to stress and you can become more mindful and compassionate and have a broader perspective. And this will help you fulfill your 
your potential and not let stress get in your way. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Dr. Melanie, where can people find you? So they can find me on my website. Currently, it's drmelaniegreenberg.biz, but I'm actually building one that's drmelaniegreenberg.com. And they could find me in psychology today. I write a blog called The Mindful Self-Express, self-express, on Facebook, Mindful Self-Express, or you can go to um, the Stress Proof Brain page on Amazon, and that's where you would buy my book. Very good. And we will also post uh, those links as well as a link to your book in the Daily Helping app as well as on the Daily Helping website as well. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Melanie, for being on today's show. And everybody who tuned into this episode, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, go and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star review. This helps other people find the podcast. Thanks again. And go out there and do something nice for somebody else. Even if you don't know them, post it in your feed using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because we know the happiest people are those that help others. Until next time. 